Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26 this morning is the text of our study. The title of the message is Christ and Caiaphas. Christ and Caiaphas. Matthew chapter 26. And this is a very long chapter that Matthew has put together because he's unfolding how the night is going and, and it's, it's like a slow motion. Uh, remember when you used to be able to do that with your VCR and you could go a couple frame by a couple frame. Now it's actually harder for us with these digital devices to use our thumb you know, on our device to figure out how to make it go slow and but Matthew is, is going very slowly because he wants us to go into the very heart of Jesus Christ and he wants us to see how Jesus suffers and dies for our sin. And not just how, but why and who for. And so it's very, very important that we also go slowly as we read through this and, and study what the Spirit has for us this morning. And I invite you this morning to listen with, with every ear that you have, the ears of your heart, and to look at this passage um, once again, although you've read it and heard it many times, and really ask yourself this question, who is Jesus? That's the question that I believe this passage is asking all of us this morning. Who do you believe Jesus is? And that question, the answer to that question, has everything to do with your future and your destiny. It has everything to do with your hope or your hopelessness. This morning, the, this passage is, um, begins in verse 57 of Matthew 26. And let's follow along as we read. When it was evening, I'm sorry, Matthew 26. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the priest, of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When the high priest tore his, then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, 
Who is it that struck you? Thus says the Word of God. Would you pray with me? O Heavenly Father, let us lay aside any pride, any false sense of bravado that says we would have done something different had we been before Christ. For we have shown by our lifelong actions that we despise you. We were rebels from the beginning, sinful, wayward enemies, blasphemers. Father, this morning may we see ourselves in this text as those who need a Savior who dies for them. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts today to hear the gospel, the good news, that Jesus will die for those who strike him. This is us. So, Father, teach us and be with us this morning in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a bulletin with you this morning, I invite you to follow along with me on the back side of the bulletin. It's just a suggested outlines with some truths and some ways to look at this passage with some structure. As we begin to look into this passage, in the hours leading into the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus presents himself uh, to the scrutiny of his creation. Just think of the magnitude and the humility of this, that God presents himself for the scrutiny of his own creatures. Such humility. That the God who spoke and all things spun into place and, and life was formed and, and made, made man then submits himself to man's judgment, to man's scrutiny, to man's investigation. My friend, if, if God doesn't do this, then we don't see God. And this morning we are invited, all of us are invited to scrutinize God, to scrutinize Jesus Christ, to put Him underneath investigation. And likely, you, have, if you're listening to this, you're coming from some sort of knowledge of Christianity, it's helpful for you to hear that God invites you to ask the hardest questions about His person, about who He is. And in this passage, God has presented the historical figure of Jesus Christ and He invites you to come alongside of some of the most religious, some of the most skeptical and cynical people and ask the question, who is Jesus? Everybody is invited to ask that question this morning. And this morning I invite you and I would like to suggest to you that if you have asked that question a million times, I ask for you this morning to ask that question again to find the answer in the Scripture passage. Who is Jesus? This morning, let's venture as if, as if this is the first time you've ever asked that question. Under examination, these people in this passage, specifically the high priests and the religious leaders, will have opportunity to peer into the very eyes and heart of God Himself and ask the question for themselves, Who is Jesus? And while they will be asking him this question, the reality is he's asking them, who do you believe that I am? 
And that's what this text does this morning. This this text invites you to ask the question, who do you believe Jesus is? Jesus is asking you. Who do you believe that Jesus is? When Jesus answers who he is, it is insulting to them. And frankly, it's insulting to us in our sin nature. It's offensive to us that we need a Savior. Even as believers, we're still getting used to the idea that Jesus is our Savior. So let's not even take it into the the baptized version of our Christianity and say, I've got it all settled. I love who Jesus is. No, still, there is some some offense to who Jesus is that strikes at us every single day. We have much to shed in our performance-driven hearts in our belief upon Him as our Savior. We could say it this way, we have only begun to believe that He is our Savior and we're still learning how to believe that He's our Savior. And every doubt and every time of discouragement and every anxious thought bespeaks and betrays that learning curve that we are in right now as Christians. We really don't yet fully believe that Jesus is everything who he has said he is. We have begun to believe, but we have not fully accepted his saving work of our lives. Today we will look into this early morning trial. It is likely one or two o'clock in the morning uh, of Christ. And we are looking at this before Caiaphas, the high priest, and we are going to learn more about his suffering, our saving and his sovereign grace. I'd like to read one commentator as he outlines the uh, six different trials that Jesus undergoes. And I think he just wraps it up better than I could. So I'm just going to share with you his summation of the interactions of the investigations of the trials that Jesus goes through in just this very few hours in the middle of the night. He says this was actually the second of six scenes of trials. Now, Matthew doesn't record the first. But this is the second. This was actually the second of six scenes of trials that Christ would face in the last hours of his life before the crucifixion. I want to remind you of those, he says. There are actually two trials that Jesus underwent. He says a church trial or the religious leaders trial, an ecclesiastical trial, and there's a civil trial. The church trial, John tells us in John 18, actually began earlier before this passage when Jesus was taken to the house of Annas, the high priest, and he was questioned there. From that house, he was taken to Caiaphas, perhaps right next door to where the Sanhedrin, remember the Sanhedrin is about 70 of the religious leaders of Israel, and that's where we see in verse 57, the scribes and the elders had gathered, sort of like a congress, a religious congress. And from that house, he was taken to Caiaphas, right next door where the Sanhedrin was gathered to question him further. In fact, they had already decided to convict him. They just wanted to gather the evidence to do it. Then after being led to Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate again, the next morning he was taken to the Sanhedrin again, where he was tried for a third time. And we'll see why this was done. But first, we need to understand the former high priest, Annas, who John records, but Matthew doesn't, and before Caius, the whole Sanhedrin, and all of this takes place before daybreak. 
the three parts of the civil trial before Pilate and then Pilate sends him to Herod and Herod questions him, sends him back to Pilate and then finally Pilate makes a pronouncement which is confirmed by the people. So there are really six aspects of the trial of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to be looking at this second, this second trial that Matthew records. And first of all, we're going to see Jesus' silence. Jesus' silence. When you hear Caiaphas speaking to Christ, you notice that um, verse number 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And then again in verse number 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Do you hear the content in Caiaphas' voice? In, in one way, we could rephrase it, Caiaphas is looking down on God. He's looking down on God and he is in effect saying, you, as a prisoner of mine, are you, are you sort of laughing? Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? Here, you helpless prisoner, look at you. And Jesus is silent in this part of the interview. He is silent because this trial is corrupt. You, you see, Matthew said that they had sought out many false testimonies. And, and it's interesting that he says they didn't just seek out testimony, they sought out false testimony. They already had the verdict and they just wanted to confirm it. And Jesus is silent, and his silence at this part of the trial shows Jesus' contempt for the trial. How many were the witnesses that Jesus could have called? They were calling many witnesses, and none of them were really coming around to, to say what they wanted them to say. But how many witnesses could Jesus have called? Just think with me, even on a theological point on this for a moment. Can we just do this for a little bit of fun? Jesus could have called and spoke forth the, the earth to thunder. He could have called the lame he could call the blind, or we should say the once lame, the now seeing, the cleansed lepers. Jesus could have called the 5,000 who had eaten the bread from the little boy's lunch. Jesus could have called the demons themselves to testify. And he could even call from the, to the Father to mercifully speak from heaven as God had spoken in the Jordan, at the Jordan River, behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Could have called a host of witnesses. And he remains silent. Remember, Jesus is sovereign over this. He's the one presenting himself. I like how Spurgeon said it. His was the silence of patience, not indifference. Of courage, not of cowardice. We find that he is silent because he is being submissive to the Father. He is silent because he is being submissive to the Father. And the reason why he's silent is the reason why uh, in, the, in Isaiah chapter 53, we learn that he, like a lamb, is led to the slaughter. He opens not his mouth. Why doesn't Jesus... Say something here. And it's because he loves you and I. 
That's why. He opens his mouth because he loves us and he's willing to die for us. And if we don't understand Jesus' silence, then we don't understand what Matthew is saying here in verse 63. That Jesus did not open his mouth. He remained silent. Jesus is so in love with you and I. He is so in love with his people that he's going to lay down his life on our behalf without defense. And if we don't understand Jesus' silence, then we've never really understood what he's come to do. It's not only recorded in Matthew, but also in Mark and Luke and in John that Jesus is silent during his accusations. And this silence is, you need to read this, his silence is because he's willing to die. He's not trying to live. If Jesus lives, you and I die. And so his silence demonstrates his willingness to die, but not just die, but to die for you who he loves. So the only time when Jesus will open his mouth will be when he is being put before these authorities and he makes a testimony just of who he is. It's interesting here, and I want us to, to pause here and recognize that who he's speaking to is this high priest. You know, just because you're re- religious doesn't mean you know Jesus. The most religious people in the land of Israel, among God's covenant nation, are standing before God himself and do not know him. If that is true of that, it is also true that it could be that someone who has gone to church all of their life, someone who has been baptized, someone who has three Bibles, and someone who has been a good person could also not know Jesus as their Savior and be as lost as Caiaphas. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple, despite what the two witnesses said. He never said that he would destroy the temple. He said, this temple will be destroyed, and I will raise it up in three days. This was in reference to him, to God templing with us, to God tabernacling with us, to God being with us. And this was a prophecy. Very interesting that the witnesses will come and they will give false testimony. Notice in verse number 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Again, Jesus is even incorporating the prophecy in the middle of his, his trial. And this prophecy comes forth, even though it's twisted, it comes forth as yet a reminder that to these people that, that they will be the ones who destroy the temple of God, and yet He is powerful and will raise it up in the third day. Jesus is silent. But secondly, we do notice here that Jesus isn't just silent, but Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks. Now again, as we had alluded to, at least in part before, this is not in contradiction to his former silence. What Jesus says becomes the crux of his condemnation and the truth of the judgment. He is Lord and that is why he should die. And that is why they should execute him. 
He claims to be the Lord. And he merges uh, in his testimony here, he merges in verse number, six, verse number 64, uh, two passages of Scripture, Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13 and 14. He merges these together and says, I am not just, just a Messiah, that is, I'm not just a liberator or a revolutionary, or someone who is a warrior who's going to help free Israel from its earthly oppressors, but I am the Messiah. Now, it's interesting that word the is very significant, especially for us in Ohio, isn't it? Did you hear about a week ago when the Ohio State University tried to put a patent or some sort of a lock on the word the as if it, it would be exclusively used for their university so that no other brand or product or anything could ever have the with it. But they were, they were locked into just saying, no, it can just be associated with, with your university, uh, in, at least in its title. But it is significant that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, verse number 64, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man. Now, Jesus has used this Son of Man reference all the way through Matthew. And this is not just what it appears to be as far as Jesus is a human. This is actually a title. And it is the title of the one who has, who has shown himself worthy to redeem creation, fallen mankind, as the incarnate second person of the Trinity. This is a title, the Son of Man, meaning that He has accomplished redemption for Adam's race. And He is the one who is now able to sit on the throne of God because He has won the right to be the King of the universe. And so He's the Son of Man in this. And notice it is the Son of Man. Not just a Son of Man, like you and I, a son of Adam, a daughter of Adam, but the Son of Man. And there are some theologians, as liberal as, as they could be, who put forward that Jesus never assumed and never presumed upon people that he was deity, that he was God himself. But here the Sanhedrin, listen, when the Sanhedrin, the most religious men, hear Jesus say this, they do not hear him say, I am just a warrior, or I am just... A, a liberator, or I am just a revolutionary, they hear Jesus say, I am God. That is what they are crucifying Him for. It is not blasphemy to say that you're a revolutionist. It is not blasphemy to say that you're some sort of uh, insurrectionist. That's not blasphemy. That might be something else, but it's not blasphemy. But these religious leaders, they hear it clearly that Jesus is saying, you are looking at God Himself. Now, by the way, this is a good passage if you are in, in an apologetics mode, perhaps uh, dealing with uh, uh, people from, other, from cults and from other religions. If they might bring to you that Jesus never claimed to be God, and this is a common theme among, uh, for example, Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus never claimed to be God. Look who is taking offense at Jesus' statement here. They are very clearly recognizing that Jesus is saying, you are dealing with God. And so if you are to say that Jesus never claimed to be God, then you've got to scoff at Caiaphas here and the religious leaders. You've got to say, this man was unjustly crucified because he never was blasphemous. 
The original audience was aghast at the claims that Jesus was making. It was clear to them, and it should be clear to us, that Jesus is unequivocally saying that he is God. Those that accused him of blasphemy, as a matter of fact, uh, paradoxically, uh, those that accused him of blasphemy were themselves the blasphemers. Notice here that in this, in this moment of Christ's humiliation, remember we had talked about this, that Jesus is, is presenting himself in total humiliation for our, for our redemption. Notice here that his weakness is turned to strength. You see me now as your prisoner and soon to be scourged and crucified. But I am coming. And when you see me then, I will be your judge. His weakness is turned to strength. We also see here that his humiliation is turned to exaltation. His humiliation is turned to exaltation. Here in the middle of this, we see someone who has who has nothing going for them. No defense. They're silent. Don't even make a defense for themselves. And yet they will be highly exalted and given a name above every name. Humiliation turned to exaltation and the judge becomes the judge. Now, by the way, in those three themes, I also see parallel blessings to us as believers not only did Jesus first demonstrate that weakness turn, was turned to strength and humiliation turned to exaltation and that to be judged would, would eventually lean, uh, uh, become a judge, so too we as believers share in that. We're rewarded that. Our weakness turns into strength. Our humiliation to exaltation. And we who are judged then in time to come will be judged. We share in this reward. In Revelation 12.11 and 13.7, we, we recognize that we participate in Jesus' glory. One right here in this trial period, we participate in His glory. We were beaten down and subjected to humiliation as we walked around on this earth. But defeat, our defeat becomes a victory. And here we find that God is sovereign in delivering His Son for redemption and Satan is using every weapon he has available in order to combat God. Satan becomes complicit in his own defeat. Satan participates in his own defeat in this. Jesus, here in this passage, as he declares what Daniel had prophesied, uh, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, I, not you, am the divine and final arbiter of history. We have a lot of um, sorting out to do right now in, in our culture and in the climate that we live in in order to sort out, sort out how our history is, even our recent history. For example, our American history, let alone our our world history. But God knows the story. 
And while we have things all jumbled around and people are trying to rewrite and revise and erase different things, the fact is that God stands as the final and divine arbiter of history. One of the questions that I'm struck with as I sat in this passage and meditated on this this past week is this, how did God not come raging down from his throne at this point? Well, it's exactly this text that gives us the answer that God will funnel all of his wrath towards Jesus instead. Do you understand that? What's taking place here in the trial while we see man's unbelief and man's scheme and Satan's plot to destroy God's plan for redemption. God is funneling his wrath even through wicked men and placing on his own shoulders and on the shoulders of his own son. So if you don't see wrath here in the right way, you need to see it. This wrath that has begun to be poured on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. God is acting out. But God is acting out on his son instead of you. Morgan, the commentator, said, As one reads a story, one wonders more and more at the greatest miracle of all, the patient suffering of the spotless one. Here we see that Christ was content to be spit upon. This Another commentator named Trapp said, Christ was content to be spit upon, to cleanse our faces from the filth of sin, to be buffeted with fists and beaten with staves, to free us from the mighty hand of God. So in conclusion, Jesus wasn't on trial. Caiaphas was. Israel was. And all of mankind was. The question was and remains for every person, who is Jesus? And and you and I need to settle that answer. Now as believers, we might feel that we have come to the right answer on that. Yes, in large part. And the most important part, we have placed our faith in that Jesus is our Savior. When Christ responded to Caiaphas, you have said it. He was making a strong point. One can say the right things about Jesus, but never truly seize upon him personally. But also, really, we're still learning who he is. Listen, Jesus isn't who we say he is. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus won't be defined merely by our tiny imaginations. He's the great Lord and the second person of the Almighty God in the Trinity. We don't stand in judgment of Jesus. It's He who stands in judgment of us. And what's so wonderful about how thoroughly the Gospel writers record these interactions leading to the crucifixion is that over and over again we get to see Christ graciously revealing who He is from so many different angles. He wants there to be no question in our mind about his identity. As a matter of fact, he, Jesus interacts in just these few hours. Think about who he interacts with and the type of people who he interacts with. 
Jesus interacts with ultra-religious high priests. He interacts with betraying friends, with disloyal disciples, with pagan soldiers, with self-righteous lawyers, with fickle multitudes, with dying thieves, with arrogant king, with corrupt governors. And so it's like in the moments before Jesus rushes to the cross, he takes a moment and says, if you think of the kind of person that lives in this world, I'm going to meet him in just, a, in just the hours before I go to the cross and answer the cynic and answer the skeptic and answer the evil and answer the plotted and answer the self-righteous. I'm going to present myself to all sorts of people so that everybody can look upon me. And by the way, this morning, that's how the Word of God is presented to you and I. All sorts of people are hearing the Word of God this morning. All of us coming at Jesus from all different points of view, like in those final hours. And Jesus invites every type of person to look upon Him. He invites every sort of person to ask every sort of question about who He is. And He gladly answers. And He gladly dies for all sorts of people whether it's a disloyal disciple or a Roman soldier with a spear, whether it's a self-righteous high priest, or whether it's a governor who washes his hands clean of the whole mess, whether it's a superstitious Herod, or whether it's a fickle multitude saying, free Barabbas, but don't free the Messiah. Jesus loves to present himself to the worst of people. And when we look at this list of who Christ will display himself to, we have to come away with some sort of conclusions. And those conclusions I'd like to suggest to you is this. Who am I like when Jesus shows himself to me? Who do I think Christ is? And in this passage, there is one final question for us to answer. Who is it that struck you? Notice the last verse, verse 68, prophesied to to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Does Christ know who struck him? Other gospel writers say that they blindfolded him and slapped him and some would spit on his face. And they would ask, who struck you? I ask you, who struck Christ? Jesus knew and he didn't say a word. He knew it was us who rejected him. We struck him. But it was actually for us that he was stricken. And it was through us that God struck Christ. So who is it that struck Christ? Christ laid out his back bear for us to beat upon and scourge in our hatred of perfection. We hate perfect love. 
We hate pure mercy. We hate infinite grace. We despise it. We despise God in the very core of our being. And God knew that. And he uttered not a word. So two truths that we can conclude with because of this. Number one. The silence that Christ employed at his trials has been turned into saving for you and me today. Jesus is no longer silent as he now reveals himself in the scriptures to you and I. God is not silent now. He's not silent now because his saving work has been accomplished. Now he wants to tell you all about it. Listen to him in his word. Christian, he has, he has much to say about suffering and sin and saving. He's speaking now. Listen. And secondly, the scourging that Christ endured at his trials has been turned into healing for you and me. By his stripes, we are healed. Every part of our pain has been passed through his suffering first. And let me say that again. Every part of our pain, every type of pain, every kind of pain has been passed through his suffering first, if you're a believer. Without his suffering, our suffering would be meaningless. But he perfects suffering. Meaning he brings our suffering through himself vicariously making suffering not an end to himself, not meaningless, not without meaning. His suffering is our healing. His suffering carries ours to the God who makes all things right. He takes our suffering to the grave and transforms it into something that we would not expect. He makes our humiliating suffering into something of a glorifying and sanctifying event. There is no suffering that the Christian endures that is not carried by him firstly here. And since he carries our suffering and he is buried in our suffering, he is resurrected unto healing and triumph. And victory and promise and hope. He takes our suffering and he bears it on his back. And Matthew is just careful to say, do you see how he's willing to be struck for you? And he will bear your grief and he will bear your sorrow. Even while you esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And he will be wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. And the chastisement of your peace will be put upon him. And by his stripes, you are healed. Even while you, like a sheep, have gone astray and everyone has gone his own way, even while you were straying, He was stricken. Because by his stripes you are healed. So notice in this passage, Jesus 
carries your wounds. Jesus carries your sorrows. And Matthew is saying, here's where it began. Here's where it was heightened. And so there is no suffering that the Christian endures that is not carried by him firstly here. Because of this, we begin to see that suffering, our suffering, isn't wasted because we are not alone in our suffering. We are not the first ones bearing the suffering. Because of His work first in suffering, our suffering is part of His saving. Not that we need to suffer for our salvation. Not that we need to be beaten and pay penance for our sin and we need to be flogged for our sins so that we purge ourselves from some sort of sin in some sadistic way. That's not at all. Because we don't suffer for our salvation. We suffer because we need salvation finally and fully and freely in Him. Now in part, but in time completely, His salvation is made known in our full healing. And so the silence was turned into saving and the scourging was turned into healing. So who do you say Jesus is this morning? Is He the one who while you deserved to be punished by God for your sin, is He the one who you will say, I believe. Will you take the punishment for me and give me forgiveness in its place? And believer, the suffering that Jesus endured was for our saving. And that saving continues through our suffering until the day of promise comes. His suffering brings meaning to ours. Let's pray.